0: I would invite you now to look with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, we're in the kingdom parables. This morning, we are looking at the title of the judgment of the kingdom, the judgment of the kingdom. And specifically, we're going to be looking at the seventh parable of Jesus teachings uh, where he's teaching parabolically or teaching in word pictures to make points about the end of the age and the end of the age. With that, there comes judgment judgment That's the theme of this morning, specifically hellfire judgment. It's a sobering parable. It's a sobering message, and we need to hear it. These days with the culture and the different things that we see, the the president's speech of late, those dynamics and sort of, uh, you know, kind of the conflict and controversy in our culture, it can become, the idea can become that where you're thinking that this is what it's all about. I'm fighting this battle here and now in a crazy culture, and we need to win and not lose our country. And I understand that dynamic in um, our thinking and our psyche, but I want you to lift to a higher realm realm of a battle between light and darkness that ultimately is coming to a culmination that is way bigger than our country. It's way bigger than even our world that that we're living in in the 21st century. This is uh, all the people through all the ages who have ever lived in the world will come to a culminating moment of judgment and where you stand with the Lord will account for your eternity and where everyone that you've ever loved or will love in this lifetime where they will go for all of eternity. This is the dividing line of kingdom judgment that is looming and is heavy and is a topic that should be felt with great gravity and seriousness. I speak about hell this morning with a with a weeping heart, with a compassionate heart, not a judgmental one. God is judge. I'm not. I want to be a, a prophet of judgment this morning to give warning Uh, to give truth, uh, to give the reality and the state of things before God's watching eye. God is is pictured as Christ who stands in the midst of the lampstands in Revelation chapter 1, who's giving a gazing eye of judgment on his church. And we need to recognize that even as saved ones, we are called to speak judgment in our culture to be prophets of judgment, to be speakers of truth. Um, The age of toleration is done. It is time now for us to let judgment begin with the household of God, as 1 Peter says, but also understanding that the world is under judgment. Just as in Noah's day and the flood was coming, now we are in this day and age and the fires will come and judgment is real and judgment is forever. And if we don't speak this truth in love, then we have no love in our hearts at all. If you don't speak about hell to people and warn people about hell and eternity, then it's hard to claim that you love people at all because the most horrible end state for anyone is the eternal state in hell. And we have to speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4 says speaking the truth in love. And that's in the context of a corrupt and perverse generation where people are like children tossed to and fro in every wind of doctrine. They're, they're swept away by false teachings that want to deny hell, deny God, deny accountability, say that universalism is real. Everybody really will get into heaven. I can't get my head around eternal hell, so it must not be real, must not be true. It's too fantastic. It's too um, huge for me to get my head around, so I'll just dismiss it altogether, and that's what false teachers want to do. And instead, we have to stand for truth and warn people because there is still time for people, as long as they have life and breath on this earth, to believe, to repent and believe, to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Then looking at these parables, and this is a culminating one in a series of seven. We We may count the next teaching as the eighth parable, but that's for next week. This is a culminating parable. There are three couplets of, uh, of the way the parables have been broken down. The first um, speak of the nature of the kingdom of God. And these were the soils parable and the wheat and tares parable. The soils parable... Speaking of a hardened heart or a a mixed heart with rocky soil or a thorny heart that looks like it's a real saving faith, but really gets choked out when life's trials come on and then you have saving faith soil. So there's a binary nature between False hope and false belief and true believing Christians. The other um, parable, of the wheat and tares, as we've been talking about, how both are sown together in this field and we're watching God work his will out. But, but it's, it's those who will go into the kingdom and those who will not is the nature of the kingdom. And then the power of the kingdom speaks of the far-reaching, expansive nature of the kingdom. How you had the parable of... The mustard seed, the smallest seed in one sense of agricultural ancient agro um, is the one that's growing this massive um, this massive tree of life where every tribe. Nation, tongue, and people will have believers all over the world, and it's like the permeating um, work of leaven and bread. It's an expansive, hope-giving kingdom. And then finally, we've been learning about the appropriation of the kingdom, the nature, the power, the appropriation, which is heart transformation, like finding a treasure in the field, and you're selling out. You're selling everything out to have the one thing, which is this treasure and the pearl of great price now, all of these dynamics, the nature, the power, and the appropriation of the kingdom need to be held in your heart as you understand this next parable, this parable of judgment, this parable of finality. It's the parable of the dragnet. It's the Greek word sane, which is a particular kind of fishing net that I'm going to describe for you. But let me just read our parable now. It's verses 47 through 50 in Matthew 13. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven "...is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered every, gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, we're looking at the parable of the net, the parable of the dragnet. A dragnet was a means of fishing. It's done even in modern times, in modern ways. But in ancient days, it was uh, a net that was a half, a half of a square mile in its size and, and volume. It's basically a net with uh, buoys and um, um, ways for the in floats and flotation devices for the high end of the net to to sit on the surface of the water and then it would be draping down as a massive wall net down with weights on the bottom of the net so it sits on the um, you know the the sea of the bottom of the sea and this wall would be an extending wall where one ship would be mooring one side of the net, perhaps anchored, or it would be moored on shore. And then another ship would unfurl the net almost in a serpentine-like fashion, giving a circumference, circumference around the Sea of Galilee or a large portion of the sea, enclosing every fish and everything that's alive inside of it as a great wall. An inescapable wall from the surface to the floor where this boundary enclosed like an aquarium everything inside of it. And the key to understanding something like this is to understand that whether the fish knew it was inside of the boundary or not, it was. And this is the picture of the judgment of the kingdom of God. The, the judgment of God is coming and the judgment of God is now. Now. Everyone is under God's accountability now. Everyone, whether you realize it or not, you are enclosed within God's boundary, within God's justice. And as unbelievers, they are at enmity with God, fish shaking against God and saying, I don't want this accountability. Or people are ignoring the accountability of God. They are just casting it aside as if it is not real telling themselves that the witness of their own conscience as they're made in the image of God is not real. There are all other explanations for God rather than God being the one who has enclosed me inside of this accountability. Fish are interesting to watch in an aquarium setting where they sometimes they're, you know, seemingly oblivious to being in the aquarium, doing their thing, eating their food, swimming around. Suddenly they, they hit off the glass and they go, oh, It's almost like they have an awareness of something is different than me just being freely swimming in the water. I'm bumping up against something. And people are in the same way um, within this boundary, uh, oblivious to God, moving through their life, moving through their day to day, ignoring God. And then they bump up against something that is a little bit of a jolt of accountability in their life. They sense God or see something of scripture and truth, and they're they're jolted about God, and then they swim off and ignore him altogether. This is the focus of the dragnet. The net is, um, I'm going to kind of break an outline down into three different um, ways Three different certainties of the kingdom of judgment. It's inevitability, it's inescapable, and it is indiscriminate. It's inevitable, inescapable, and indiscriminate. And that is here, it is drawn, and it is drawing in everyone inside of it to a concluding end. It's a picture of, of this suspension of, of pr- a present wall that is capturing everything inside. And the Sea of Galilee has been said to have 20 different varieties of fish. Some are edible and others are not. So some will be kept and some will be thrown away. It's like fishing here, as we know. People keep the silvers, (laughs) they keep the reds, and they throw away the humpies or the chums, uh, I guess. And some people eat it all, right? It doesn't matter. Um, But the idea is that there is a a real demonstration within this parable of those that are kept and those that are thrown back or thrown away and discarded. And this is the picture of the close of the kingdom. The dragnet, the certainties regarding the coming kingdom. This is how you can take notes, the certainties. What's first of all certain from verse 37 is that the coming judgment of the kingdom is inevitable. It is inevitable. It says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown in the sea. It is inevitable. It is here. The sea here is a picture of the world. Everything in it, all of the inhabitants are in the sea. This is the reality. Whether people will acknowledge it or not, this is the reality that people are in God's world and there's a boundary around them. Accountability is coming. The judgment is here. And adjudications of this judgment are happening all the time, every second. A world clock, something I looked up, it was called the death world clock, says that the annual deaths are 56 million a year. 56 million deaths a year per minute, 106.6, and per second, 1.8. So every second in our world, someone is dying. Every second, it's another death, another death, another death. You say, why is that significant? Because it's another person who's standing before the Lord, who's brought to this end every second, every moment on the precipice between eternal life and eternal death. People stand just like you're standing on a cliff and it's one step away between heaven and hell. One step away. Interestingly, life is still happening at an incredible rate. According to a Survey given a few years ago, 140 million births per year, 267 births globally per minute and 4.5 births every second. You can see there's an exponential increase of births as people are dying. But as this ratio is taking place, it's all life and death that's coming to an ultimate culmination of judgment before the Lord. There's judgment that takes place immediately when you die And then there is an ultimate accounting at the resurrection where you are ultimately fit for eternal heaven or eternal hell forever with a resurrection body. There's kind of two phases there. I do not believe in soul sleep. I believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, as the Word of God says. I think that also the section in Luke that we're going to look at, where you have the rich man who was um, in Sheol or in a state of death and torment, now is the picture of people going to hell immediately. But there will be an ultimate accounting that the Bible speaks to, and that's what we're talking about here. This is inevitable. This is an incomprehensibly weighty matter. Not only is coming judgment inevitable, it's also inescapable. Look again at verse 47. It says, and gathered fish of every kind. Everything is gathered. There's not any fish that's going to get away. There's not a fish that's going to go over this net. There's not a fish that's going to go through the net. And not a fish that's going to go under the net. That's the picture of this, again, stretched out wall, like mesh, God's mesh around everything. And it's coming in with an enclosure that becomes smaller and smaller and gathering a voluminous amount of fish that will be ultimately thrust up onto the beach. This is different than... Um, something my son has been part of, and other people from our church have been part of crews that work um, what's called a, a set net. My son's worked three summers commercial fishing down at Bristol Bay um, with a good Christian family and has learned a lot. But you set the net by having it moored on the shore and then um, using a pulley system and um, poles and things to stretch the net out um, in... You know, in the way of fish that are swimming um, upstream and, and are captured into this net. And my son goes out on a skiff and picks the net uh, with friends and, and does all of that and, you know, sleeps a couple hours here and there. And then you just you keep working hard for six weeks according to tides and the volume of, sh- of fish and when they're running. And the idea is that you pick all the fish that you possibly can out of the net and try not to lose any of them. There are seals that come and eat the fish. There are bears that are found in the middle of the night. I hear these horrible stories about like, oh, check the bear and run it off. It's in the net and it's eating the fish and things like that that um, my kid tells me about. There's a lot he probably doesn't tell me about. It's dangerous work and um, interesting. But that kind of work is... uh, it's kind of a small scale compared to this dragnet experience where things are pulled in and no fish is lost. Like a lot of people believe they're going to get out of it. They're somehow going to find a way out of the accountability, out of the judgment of God, out from under what God sees, where you're going to fake your way into a state of eternity where you're fine. And that's just not the case whatsoever. God makes the rules. He made you in his image. He designed you and he desires you and calls you to believe on him, not yourself, to relinquish yourself of your own personal rights, your own personal agenda. He calls you to bow the knee to his lordship and to follow him for the joy of your salvation, for the the fulfillment of true saving faith that he spawns in your heart as you repent of your sin and walk away from the world and give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. But those who are repugnant, those who are resistant, those who make up their own mind about what eternity is will find themselves lost in an eternal state of judgment by this kind of ignorance. People can't get their minds around eternity. They want to forfeit the truth and um, believe different doctrines or make up false doctrines about the future there 's a false doctrine called annihilationism, which is where people just believe that when you die, you just disintegrate. I think most people, if you were push them to push them to the edge, they would say that either in eternity everybody is going up into this ethereal cloud like consciousness, kind of like nirvana. People believe that whether they believe they are believing in that religious Um, Idea or not, most people believe in nirvana or they believe in annihilationism. Just you cease to exist once you die, that it's over. A lot of people talk about seeing a light or seeing something or whatever, but the truth of the matter is when you die, your soul is very much alive and your soul is fit for eternity. You are an eternal being and you will be somewhere eternally forever, awaiting a resurrection body. But the idea of eternal hell, it makes people shudder. If you really think hard about that, it's an infinite subject. It's not something that you can fully grasp. We can't fully grasp heaven for eternity. Think about that. We can't think about how God has always existed from eternity, past. There, there is no time where God has not existed. Because we are finite, we can't understand fully the infinite We can grasp at it, we can think about it, but it's hard for us to fully be solid on something that we have no capacity to get our heads around ultimately. We just can't do it. We have to believe God is eternally the I am by faith. We have to believe in heaven by faith. We have to believe in the joy of heaven by faith, that we'll never have a bad day again. We'll never have any sickness again. We'll have no more pain. We'll have no more suffering, no more loss, complete fulfillment, complete joy, complete full fellowship forever. We have to embrace that by faith, and it's easy to do that. But will you also, in your mind, turn your attention to eternal hell? Eternal darkness, suffering that's ongoing, an inescapable hopelessness that never ends, that is fully warranted by offending a holy, eternal God. John Stott, the great theologian who wrote several commentaries, great books, he ultimately gave way at the end of his life to a false teaching called annihilationism. He believed in that out of his own tears and his own um, remorse for people, the thought of people being in hell forever and ever was too much for him. And so he gave way to that. Rob Bell, a heretic who ultimately denied the faith, he had a flash in the pan existence for, for about 10 or 15 years and a lot of followers, a lot of followers on YouTube and different things, but the guy has denied the faith. He wrote a book ultimately where he was trying to I say that people in hell, everyone in hell gets a second chance and they all will ultimately go to heaven. And that's just not true. There's nowhere in scripture to verify that or to even say that. But a lot of people bought into it because they wanted to try to do something with hell that the scripture doesn't do universalism is the thought that it's the false teaching that everyone ultimately gets into heaven under the atonement of Christ. Christ died for the world, so everybody ultimately gets there. But what do we do with the fact that no one comes to the Father but through Christ, that you are saved through faith, by grace alone, that you have to repent and believe and be given eternal life? It's incomprehensible. Forever hell is so... Um, immense a thought that the whole Roman Catholic Church leveraged it for money and power. They said that you would go to a level of hell that we'll call purgatory, which is where we get the word purge, where you're purging your sins and paying for your sins down there. Oh, and by the way, if you pay us some money as relatives, we will spring your um, loved ones from hell early. Just give us power, give us your money in indulgences. And that's what they did historically. The point is that this dragnet is real, and it is inevitable, and it is inescapable. We can't talk our way out of the reality of what hell means and how it is described. It is an inescapable net. Finally, third point, point. this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, it's indiscriminate. The Bible speaks that God is not discriminating between who comes in and who um, stays out of hell, who gets heaven and who gets hell. It has nothing to do with who you are intrinsically. You are not valuable in and of yourself in a way that gets you into heaven or sends you to hell. That is not what we're talking about. Heaven and hell is not ultimately a moral judgment where you, you do enough good things to warrant heaven as opposed to doing Fewer bad things that get you into heaven, or more bad things that get you into hell, as we said before in the parable of the weeds, you see that um, verse thirty you see that weeds are bound in bundles bundles and then burned, but then there is those who are gathered as wheat into the barn. There's this non-emotional sort of end of things where something's gathered one way and something is gathered another way. You have good fish that are gathered into containers and you have bad fish that are thrown away. When it says it was full, it means that everyone inside this boundary is is um, filling the net and they are literally thrown ashore. It says men drew it ashore. And the men here are pictured as fishermen who are sitting down in a non-emotive way saying, you're in and you're out. You're good and you're bad. The die has been cast. The decision has already been made. The determination of whether you believed in this life or not has been adjudicated. Once you are up on the beach, once you are in this adjudication, it is over. It is too late. That's the point. In or out. You're either acceptable or you are unacceptable. You are either a marketable fish or unmarketable fish. The point is that there's only one way to be accepted, and that is because you are in Christ. If you look at the next verses in verse 49 and 50, you see the explanation. The explanation, look at verse 49. It says, so it will be at the end of the age. This is everything has come to a close. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. This is the end of the age. This is the close of the age. Matthew 25 talks about angels as well, separating the sheep from the goats. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The mighty angels are the ones who are um, exacting judgment. They're the ones who are differentiating the evil from the righteous, the good from the bad. Evil and righteousness is um are the two demarcations of people good you're righteous evil you are bad and the idea again is not talking in terms of morality it's whether or not god has changed your heart from the inside out has he made you righteous in christ not that you have earned your righteousness. It's only the righteousness that is given to you. It's righteousness that comes to you because you're saying, I can't save myself. I can't make myself good before God. I can only be saved by grace. And that kind of heart of humility is where God says that I'm going to declare you as righteous. It's a determination that's made by faith in this life. You say, but what if, what is God, how is he going to let me into heaven? Well, if God counts any of your sin against you, then he can't let you into heaven. And so the only way for you to be saved is to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Count all of my sin against what Jesus did where he died on the cross 2000 years ago. Count it against him. Let Jesus be my savior, and my Lord. I can't save myself. Count the sin against your son and his death, burial, and resurrection absorbs that sin, takes it away from me, and then, Lord, give me his righteousness. Cover me in what he did for me. And then you stand before God, and then he can let you into heaven. That's the only way. It's called a substitution. It's a switch out. The life Jesus lives becomes the life that you lived. The life that you lived in sin becomes what Jesus died for on the cross. It's the great exchange. It's amazing grace. It's no more difficult than that. It's him or me. His punishment on the cross or my punishment in hell for all of eternity. And the stakes could not be higher. Listen to me, young people, listen to me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. I want the baptistry filled tomorrow with confessions of saving grace where you say, my heart was touched. I heard about hell. I didn't want to go there. I cast myself upon Christ. Senior saint, don't fake yourself out and believe that you're just fine. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved middle-aged, teenager, young adult, whatever my age is classified as, I don't know, I'm 50, whatever. We all need to be believers in this life. We're surrounded like these walls. We're inside of the boundary of the judgment of the kingdom of God. And today is the day of salvation. Do not walk out of here without making it right with the Lord in your heart. And then tell someone, Because you want that accountability. You want to know that you're inside of grace. Eternal judgment is warranted or it is real to you. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, why? Why does eternal hell um, have to be eternal hell? Why does it have to go on forever? It's because God is infinite And he's infinitely holy. And we as his created beings have a choice that we make. If we sin against God and do not accept Christ as our savior, then our offense against an eternal God warrants an eternal punishment. Think about it in terms of paying a debt. If you sin against eternal God, then you have an eternal debt that you would need to pay. So the only way that God can have you be paying that eternal debt is to send you somewhere for eternity. And it's violent punishment. It's violent. Look at verse 50 and throw them into the fiery furnace. You're hurled there. You're thrown violently there in the justice and judgment of God. People don't want to hear about this. Again, I'm speaking this out of a weeping heart. And I'm speaking this because this is truth in love. It would be unloving for me not to talk about the fiery furnace or to dumb it down. It's an everlasting flame. If you've ever been burnt, if you've ever stepped on a hot coal, if you've ever had the burning of, of your flesh go from the top layer, to a subcutaneous level where the burning is happening from underneath upward, you know what it's like to be in some severe pain. You know what it's like to throw your hand in a bag of ice and hopefully that it will cool not only from the outside, but begin to cool from the inside and stop the burning sensation from happening in your body where your flesh is eating away. Being in a fiery furnace is the idea of you are enclosed in a place of perpetuity, perpetual flame and darkness. It's not the idea of a campfire that's for a little while and then burns out and cools off. This is perpetuity, like a furnace that continues to kind of self-perpetuate and keep heat going in and of itself. That's why this picture is so apropos for what hell really is. It's an awful place. And the worst place and the worst thing about hell is this, it's endless. That's the worst thought of hell to me. A thousand years, 10,000 years, sounds so much better. As horrific as that would be for there to be an ending to this, but there cannot be an ending to this because God's character and name is attached to what is going on here with hell. It is eternal. It's everlasting and it's awful. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, the idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth is the idea of a consciousness. There is a consciousness in hell. Um, People are aware of what is going on there. The weeping is the the weeping of regret. R.C. Sproul talks about this, the cycle of what's happening. That's why weeping and gnashing back and forth are mentioned over and over in the teachings of Christ. You're crying because you're so sad that you didn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in your lifetime. And then you're gnashing your teeth because you're either angry at God or angry at yourself. You're sad and angry, sad and angry over and over again, shaking your fist at God and then regretting the fact that you didn't turn to him in this life look with me over at Luke chapter 16 Luke chapter 16 the scene of the rich man and Lazarus this is a window into the dynamics of heaven and hell the consciousness of being in hell is manifest here in the testimony of the rich man it says verse 19 of Luke 16 there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. A picture of heaven, pre-resurrection heaven. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham, a picture of heaven, far off and Lazarus at his side. This idea that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom or a place of safety rather than this rich man who's burning in torment in Hades. Hades, the picture of of fire and the afterlife and torment. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. You have flame here. You have the rich man who's not even speaking of his full escape. He just wants one kind of um, quality of relief that he possibly could have. Any measure of relief in the existence that he's owning that he deserves send Lazarus to cool my tongue. He's conscious of Lazarus being in heaven. He's conscious of his own state of hell and existence in flame. There's not annihilationism here. He's there. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime um, received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now He is comforted here and you are in anguish. There's a sowing and reaping principle. You denied God. You lived for self. You lived for sin. And you received all the spoils of the world while he was a man of faith in poverty, but indiscriminately still a believer, whether rich or poor, um, no matter what background you come from, um, the judgment scene is indiscriminate, whether rich or poor. Being wealthy doesn't keep you from heaven. But being wealthy doesn't get you to heaven. Being poor doesn't get you to heaven. But being poor doesn't keep you from heaven. Everything is laid open and bare on the shoreline of God's judgment. And it's indiscriminate. Some go here, some go there. And it all comes down to whether or not you believed in this life. In verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, it's a gulf that you cannot bridge. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross and from there to us. And he said, then I beg you father to send him Lazarus to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into the place of torment. Verse 28, by the way, I talked to somebody first hour that was talking about having to reach out to a sibling. A person first hour who came up and said that was a heavy sermon and I need to really think about making that phone call. It's a person who's living a compromised lifestyle, who's at a certain event today, which, uh, you know, is is rife with sinfulness. I'll leave it at that. And this person's grieving as a brother and he's saying, "I, I love this person and I'm the only one that that person will listen to. And so he felt the obligation to make that call. Who do you need to call? Who do you need to reach out to? Who do you need to speak the truth and love to about the judgment? We're under judgment already. The dragnet is already set. The boundary is already made. It is closing in. Once things are set in the way that they are, we can't go back from the dead and warn people. Um, God's voice uh, through Abraham um, in, in, this word picture in verse 29, it says, but Abraham said, they have the brothers, the five brothers have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If something supernatural happens, then they'll believe. And God says to him, verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't listen to scripture, if they won't listen to preaching, if they won't listen to the Old Testament truth, if they won't listen to the law of God, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Doesn't matter. If they won't listen to the word, they won't listen to something supernatural. Nothing will captivate the attention and change the heart less than the word of Christ penetrating the soul. So when you speak to people, speak truth to people. Tell them the Bible. Give them the word of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's described in the word of God. Don't believe in the Jesus of Hollywood. Don't believe in the Jesus of pageants. Don't believe in the Jesus even of little storybook lessons. Believe on the Jesus. Let your vision of Jesus rise from scripture and place your complete trust in him. Know Jesus through the word and give the word of God to people so they can know the true Jesus. Why? Because hell is real. Let me finish with... uh, We've made the three points. It's inevitable. Judgment of the kingdom is inescapable. And the judgment of the kingdom is indiscriminate. It's indiscriminate. There is no discrimination in the end. Let me just blanket this with some references to hell as Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and 13, in Matthew 22, Matthew 24, and following. Matthew five twenty two, everyone who is angry with his brother, meaning unrepentant in anger, will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable of the counsel. Whoever says, You fool, someone who's given over in anger, unrepentant, will be liable of hell the hell of fire. Matthew thirteen, forty one to forty two, the Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out of the kingdom uh, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13, the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the parable of the the, uh, servant who had the unpayable debt. He couldn't pay a lifetime's um, debt to a king and he was gonna be cast into... Um, debtor's prison, which means forever prison, and he begged for mercy, and the king had mercy on him and forgave him all the debt, and then that person hardened his heart in, in the, and presumed upon the grace that he was given, and then held a day laborer um, by the throat and said, you need to pay your day's wage, otherwise I'm going to kill you or put you in prison, and then the laborers um, told on that servant and that master ultimately through this person who was unrepentant, into hell. Matthew twenty-four, thirty-one, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from the end of heaven, one into heaven to the other. Matthew twenty-five, thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and on the goats on his left. Again, the indiscriminate selection between sheep and goats the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when would he see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you or sick or in prison and visit you? They know that they didn't do enough good to save themselves they know that they couldn't perform their way into heaven when did this happen Said if you truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of my brothers you did to me in other words your heart was changed you cared about people you had the fruit of the spirit where you loved people there was heart transformation appropriation of the kingdom had happened you found jesus in this lifetime but what happens to the others who are the goats represented as Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you hear that word eternal? Please take this message seriously, eternal. We take messages in the doctor's office very seriously that are temporal, temporal terminal illness. Temporal states of affairs, temporal circumstances, temporal, I lost my job, temporal this, temporal that. How about eternal, eternal news? If you do not believe, there is eternal judgment. Again, we believe in Revelation 21 and 22 about eternity with the new heavens and the new earth. So likewise, we need to believe in the lake of fire where the devil and his angels are cast and we're all unbelievers are cast. This is Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is, here it is, the second death. Say, so what does that mean? Well, in John chapter 5, uh, there is a judgment that's given by Christ an allusion to the final day of judgment where people are fit with a resurrection body of life and a resurrection body of death. You say, what are we talking about? It's so important for you to understand the reality of this. This isn't just the netherworld that we don't understand or don't comprehend. John chapter 5 Speaks of uh, verse 28 and come out those who have done good to the resurrection life. Those whose heart have been changed. Resurrection life and those who've done evil. The resurrection of judgment. This ties in with Mark's account in Mark chapter 9. I just want to touch on this. I don't want to leave hell, the teaching of hell short for what it really is. Mark chapter 9 verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. If you... If you drive a wedge in someone's spiritual life and cause them to stumble or sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Unquenchable. It's never going to stop. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. You rip it out. You rip out the sin in your life. You cut it off. You stop the sin in your life. Why? Because you don't want to be a divided man. You don't want to be a rocky soil person who thinks you're saved and really you got no roots. You don't want to be that person who is uh, thorny soil, who thinks you have depth and you're choked out when life gets hard. You don't want to be the tares where you're entangled with the wheat and you say, well, I'm at church. I've got a good name. I've known God a long time, I think, and I got it all down in my head. But really, you're headed to hell. You want to cut through those things and say No. Enough is enough. I'm solely for Christ. I'm appropriating the kingdom. Jesus is my treasure. I sell all for him. He's the pearl of great price. I cash out all my pearls for one pearl. Why? Because you don't want to go to hell. Verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What do we mean by that? You're fit with a resurrection body that is never going to wither away. Ultimately, no worm will die on your flesh ever. Because you will continually be eaten up with unquenchable fire for all of eternity. Everyone is salted with, everyone will be salted with fire, verse 49 says. Well, this is a horrible state, but again, I have to just remind you without the warning, there's no love. John Bunyan, who was a pastor, preacher, and author from the 1600s, a Puritan, he wrote uh, the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, formerly titled The Most Dangerous Journey, speaking of the danger of the Christian life. He was ultimately thrown into jail for being uh, a person who would preach unashamedly. He preached against religion. He had to preach to his congregation over the jail wall. He wrote this about hell. He said, In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devil's appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thine hair, ready to stand upright on thy head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of the devil's appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with thee howling, roaring and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt even at thy wits end and be ready to run stark, raving mad for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here, here thou must be forever. When thou hast been in hell for so many thousand years, as there are stars in the firmament or drops of the sea or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word, ever, how will it torment thy soul?